0: On this episode of the Multi-Emery Podcast, we're doing something a little bit different. We occasionally invite guests onto our show, usually to ask people about a book that they have coming out or asking people about their expertise on a particular topic. Something we don't often have the opportunity to do is actually take a deep dive into a guest's personal story, their superhero origin story, if you will. There are so many forces that end up shaping our values and so many pathways that lead us into the relationships that we end up in. And there's a lot of really unique and fascinating backstories out there. If you're listening and you really enjoyed today's episode and would love for us to do more of these kind of interviews, please reach out and let us know via our social media or in our private Patreon groups. For this episode, I had the great pleasure of doing a one-on-one interview with Michelle Hai. Michelle is a Portlander and the second generation Asian American behind the popular Instagram account Polyamorous While Asian. She seeks to spread awareness around non-monogamy and help affirm those practicing non-monogamy, specifically BIPOC folks. Bear in mind that we recorded this interview back in October of 2020, so our discussion of current events is a few months behind. That being said, I loved having this conversation, I loved getting to hear Michelle's story, and I hope that you will too. Enjoy! Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you, and we're here for you. So I really struggled with knowing where to start with these interviews. So I'm just going to toss out a question and, and we'll see where it goes. Can you remember some of the earliest messaging and lessons that you recall getting about romantic relationships and sex?
1: Gosh, yeah, that's I feel like that's like a deep dive.
0: Wow. Yeah, we're just really jumping.
1: (laughs) I'm listening to like child psychology questions here. So as like a child of divorce, like my parents divorced when I was about six or seven. So I think that was like a huge marker, I think of like a mental marker for sure, with regard to monogamy in our society. And that Mm. in this case, it didn't work. And of course, as an adult, I can realize that of course, it was for the best that particular relationship didn't work. But definitely as a child, I think it, was one of the main things that first began to give me that kind of jaded feeling toward monogamy. But I Mm. didn't have the vocabulary for it until I was about like 18. As a child, like growing up, and my mom would date and I would see her have like, she was a serial monogamist. And so definitely had this like, first hand look at... (laughs) monogamy in a dysfunctional way and of course through like a child's eyes so it's like still trying to figure out the world and trying to figure out my place in the world trying to figure out how relationships work and that was definitely (laughs) it was definitely a huge factor in I think me moving away from thinking monogamy is like this shit and it led me to start watching like rom-coms like my mom loved rom-coms and stuff And Mm -hmm. like love triangle trope, very common. But yeah, as as a kid, like as an adolescent and as a teenager, I began thinking like, oh, why can't they like work it out? Isn't that a thing adults Mm -hmm. could do? Maybe he seems (laughs) fine. He seems fine. They could share. Is that something that people do? I
0: don't know. (laughs) Wow, that's so fascinating. (laughs) Because I I feel that looking at our typical rom-coms and especially rom-coms of, let's say, like the 90s and early 2000s, that there's so little in there to suggest any quote-unquote sharing whatsoever. And I think that's so unique that it, independently you were like, people should be able to figure this out. I don't see what the problem is. Yeah. One of my, one of my mom's favorite rom-coms was uh, Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> so like oh have, yeah, Reese I Wothers saw Street. that one in theaters. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I saw that movie a
1: lot. And like in that movie, a lot of the time they have the love triangles where they insert some like shallowly bad trait for one character to make it seem, okay, the easy choice is to go with the other character. But in that movie, both of them were fine. Both of them were, I think,
0: pretty good. I'm I'm trying to remember, and I I probably have not seen it since I saw it in theaters, honestly. (laughs) So I'm trying to remember, yeah, because it was like her partner at home. I thought his bad trait was just that he was like rich or something. (laughs) Yeah, the Alabama
1: husband, like his bad trait was just maybe that he was a bit rough around the edges. And he wasn't like abusive or anything like that. And then the Patrick Dempsey character, like they kind of made him flawless. And so mm-hmm. I think that was one of the main movies where it's can't she figure out a way? Can't the three of them figure out some sort of way to share? <laughs> mm-hmm. So that was definitely something that like played in the back of my mind. But I think even at that time, monogamy was still king in my mind because I don't, I didn't have any formal exposure to anything different. So even though I had these kind of misgivings. I didn't have the vocabulary. And I was still probably like, Oh, I'll probably get married someday and have kids and blah, 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 blah.
0: Did you and your mom have conversations about relationships and dating when you were young, or and especially around that time that she was dating?
1: No, we didn't. Not really. It was a, it was a lot of specific messaging, I think, I think in her way kind of feminist messaging where it's if you ever get into a relationship with a person always make sure to be financially independent and always make sure to be emotionally independent and be strong so that you don't have to be like codependent uh, on anyone Hmm. so I think that was a lot of the messaging is just don't fall into any I guess conventional trappings with romantic relationships even Hmm. though time and time again I think (laughs) looking back I think she herself fell into those trappings and she was definitely doing like a do as I say, not as I do.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say that sounds like a lot of um, mixed messaging and probably not really intentional necessarily, but yeah, a lot of different takes to absorb as a kid.
1: And yeah, so it wasn't until I had just started college. I, I met a guy at a bookstore And eventually we started talking and he recommended the book Sex at Dawn to me. (laughs) And it was his way to introduce like the open relationship thing because at the time, yeah, (laughs) yeah, at the time I didn't know that he already had a girlfriend. And so he gave me that book to read. And reading that book was pretty mind blowing because, yeah, that was my first time being introduced to a lot of the formal concepts of vocabulary uh, and definitions around non-monogamy and reading that book uh, things just clicked. And like the misgivings I'd had, and all the little like nagging notions that I'd had as a as a
0: teenager, mm. started to kind of find find a place. Interesting about sex at dawn because I know, I mean, for myself and for so many people, it's it's one of the top three of like formative books, as it were, at least in this particular time period. And I know for some people, reading sex at dawn is very much like a turn off, kind of diving into the evolutionary psychology and also having to swallow. Almost this implication of you're naturally non-monogamous—that's what you should be. But I know for so many people, and it sounds like for you as well, that is, this is the, for lack of a better, slightly like come Jesus kind of moment,
1: a, l- <laughs> a, a little bit,
0: <laughs> something like a that. A little bit,
1: yeah, yeah. I actually I really appreciated that approach, and I'm glad that was my first introduction to it because I think they're like the other uh, books I know, like opening up is more toward like couples and things like that, but opening up more than to a lot of like how-to guides. Yeah, they're more like how to guides. And so I think this introduction as this anthropological argument for n- non monogamy being natural helped things click into place better because, yeah, I don't know. E- if Maybe it was like just a suggestion of there's science behind it. Mm. So it helps my mind right. to be like,
0: oh, okay. It must right, be okay. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm curious to ask, because you, you mentioned briefly that you just had this assumption of, oh, someday I'm going to get married and someday I'm going to have kids. Up till the age of 18, do you feel like that stayed pretty solid for you? That kind of assumption about what your future life was going to be or future relationships were going to be?
1: I think so. As a teenager, I wasn't sexually active and whatnot. I was definitely more like the shy, just get good grades and just focus on that. And teenage boys seem kind of weird. I don't know. <laughs> um, so of course, like as a teenager, I was like super curious and whatnot, but that wasn't focus. And so I don't think I thought about it too hard. I think it was just an assumption that I just left there. And it was like, I would probably touch it later, but it's just not particularly relevant mm-hmm. at this time. But yeah, I think I would just have the assumption that I was going to do like the get married and, and the natural, the, the conventional relationship escalator stuff.
0: So you read Sex at Dawn. And was that like literally just the very, very ever first exposure to anything outside of monogamy for you?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because I had never encountered the term polyamory. I had never encountered just even the umbrella like (laughs) non-monogamy I'd never encountered any of the terms before and so reading that was and I I appreciate that book does do a deep dive but it does make it very accessible so yeah so that really was like baby's first introduction (laughs) to the whole world. Baby's first
0: (laughs) non-monogamy book so then you read that and then did everything just go fantastic with this guy who introduced you to the book? Oh of course not of course not (laughs)
1: Yeah. A huge thing too was, yeah, I was 18 at the time and like he was 32 at the time. So there's definitely that age difference, power differential. And as a teenager, especially, yeah, just starting college, having this kind of attitude where I definitely bit off more than I could chew and (laughs) thought I could handle things because I'm like, I'm entering the world of adulthood now and I can handle these things. It's very thrilling. It's very exciting. It's scary and new. And uh, yeah, just, entering a new chapter of my life. And so just diving in headfirst mm. because he had never been in an open relationship either. So it was definitely the blind oh, leading the blind.
0: Wow. So he, okay, so he had a girlfriend, mm-hmm. but they were like newly open. Yeah. And he was waiting at bookstores to recruit 18 <laughs> year olds. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> that sounds, it's, it's it's as creepy as it sounds.
1: <laughs> it's like hanging around, hitting on like naive looking folks who may be a bit more moldable than, you know, mm. people his age who are like more stuck in monogamy or whatever. There's definitely a grooming aspect of it. And of course, I uh, did not know this at the time. So it has, yeah, taken a bit of hindsight, some therapy, you know. But yeah, so that relationship did not go well. It lasted about five years because oh wow. I, think, I think a big part of me was still committed to having this work because it did introduce me to non-monogamy. And over time, I knew that aspect of it was something that was becoming more and more a core part of me. And I think for a while, I n- entangled that concept. So I just felt invested in that relationship working because I wanted non-monogamy to work. And mm. it, there was a bit of a pride thing as well, because <laughs> I didn't I didn't want to be one of those like foolhardy teenagers who jumped into a relationship. And then, of course, it like, doesn't work out. And I'm like, Mm. oh, I can make this work. I can do the long-term relationship thing just right off the bat, my very first relationship. But but yeah, it did not work out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's so interesting you talk about that. I know that's definitely something I've experienced in my own life and and a refrain that I've heard a lot from clients as well, that sometimes there's something about someone who helps catalyze some kind of change in you, some kind of life change in you or identity change in you even if they turn out to be an asshole, that sometimes it's, yeah, it's like you get attached to the symbolism of what they represented, the turning point that they brought in, that then makes it harder to sometimes recognize when it's time to leave or when they're no longer serving you. So for these five years, were you out about being in a non monogamous relationship? It was very
1: gradual. I like the first person who was close to me who knew about it was my sister. I am mean, it was the four. All girls. And so yeah. My closest sister, we're just three years apart and we're super close. And so she was the first one to ever know. It wasn't like easy news for her because I think it was kind of it was kind of weird. And also like the age difference too. Uh she didn't take the news well at first, but she became more and more accepting of it and I think just as she just saw more and more that it wasn't necessarily like the non-monogamy was bad about the relationship, but just like the other person in the relationship. So it was my sister and over time, my my friends would know and it would just be, uh, would just come up and most of my friends are monogamous, but they're pretty accepting. Yeah. With regard to other people, like my the rest of my family, they don't know
0: and it's like still don't right they still don't also um
1: and even at that time so like the (laughs) of course when I told my parents that I was going out with a 32 year old man they were like no (laughs) 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 especially since I was like still living at home at the time and whatnot so they're like no don't do this and it was very very tumultuous
0: so it took yeah because I imagine at that age also you that's not something you're open to hearing from anybody much less your parents especially yeah
1: Yeah. And, and at that time, I think because the reaction felt like an overreaction, like I think the arguments that they were presenting weren't arguments that were like clicking and it just seemed like a blanket no, as opposed to like, okay, let's talk about the situation and, and go through it. And so I think, yeah, especially in my 18 year old brain, I'm like, oh, they don't understand. Of course, (laughs) they never understand. (laughs) I'm just gonna have to do this on my own. I kind of had to have, like, yeah, kind of hide that relationship from my parents for a while, and it took I think three years in before they met for like Thanksgiving. And it was it was okay, but yeah. So the, to this day, they don't know that I am non monogamous, and at this point, it's one of those things where it's I'm not necessarily directly opposed to them knowing, but I do know that they would be uncomfortable with the conversation. So I'm in no rush, or I don't have any particular desire to really talk to them. About it because, right? Yeah, I don't particularly need their validation to tell to tell me that you know what I'm doing is okay or not. And yeah, if it's just going to bring up discomfort, I, it's just not worth it at this time.
0: I, I want to talk more about outness in general, but before getting to that, I want to rewind a little bit because. Something that I'm curious about, something that happened in my own non-monogamy journey, and I think it's happened for a lot of other people as well, is you you get into this relationship at the beginning that was very formative, but like you said, but maybe not very functional and not great, and ultimately you leave it. And I'm really curious about that moment when you finally get out of that relationship, because I feel for some people that moment is kind of a well, that sucked. Maybe I should go back to monogamy or go back to a more traditional structure or something that feels more reliable. And for some people, it's more of this turning point of actually I'm gonna get deeper into the weird relationship structures. And so I'm curious to hear about that relationship ending or you finally leaving that relationship and what that transition was like for you.
1: So um fortunately, yeah, within the five years I had made other sexual um connections and So he no longer was like my sole connection to polyamory. I started um, having non-monogamous friends who like turned into partners. I have like three three or four relationships that began during that initial relationship that are still existing today and that are very, very valuable and I feel like very sustainable and strong. And so it helped me realize that it was definitely that relationship and not non-monogamy that was wrong. So it really, yeah, like you said, like go deeper into the non monogamy thing because it was like the non monogamy thing was going to be yeah, just super important for my identity, super important for my life. I knew that there may be times where I am more low energy and maybe not as like active in pursuing a whole bunch of different relationships, but I knew that I would always want the option to have other relationships. And yeah, so having those really healthy a stable other relationships at the time, I think helped me break away from that initial relationship and like, right, created like a safety net, a like, sort of hammock for me to <laughs> divest from that kind of toxic relationship so that I wasn't like completely alone. And it still sucked. It still was a bad breakup, but definitely yeah. was cushioned by the fact that I still had people that I love.
0: Yeah. It's such an interesting thing because Within the non-monogamy community, I think so many people have experiences of their breakup pain being minimized uh, by other people because they're non-monogamous, you know, Mm -hmm. the old trope of, well, you have someone else, so why be sad about this one, you know? And at the same time, it's, like you said, still so painful, even when you're not isolated and even when you have other people around you to support you. And then at the same time, it is kind of like this weird little fringe benefit of non-monogamy of helping to kind of almost create a little bit of that buffer around leaving a toxic relationship of having this really established proof of, hey, there's people who like, really love you. Because we can get so stuck in that trap of after a breakup of being like, oh my God, am I not lovable? Am I never going to date anyone again? You know, am I messed up in some way? I- I'm curious, for the sake of our listeners hearing this part of the story, what would Michelle now have said to like 18-year-old Michelle at the beginning of this relationship?
1: That's something I ask myself a lot still. Because <laughs> mm. yeah, Leah, looking back, like advice from my younger self, a lot of it would have to do with like confidence and self-esteem, because th- those were huge parts of why I stayed in that relationship. And kind of those fears where it's like, oh, if I don't have this, when will the next one come along? And yeah, questions about me being acceptable or lovable. And and so (laughs) I definitely coach 18-year-old Michelle on self-worth and on, I think, cautioning against codependency, you know, like depending on this other person to make me feel valuable. And to, yeah, to trust myself more, because I think at the time... I went along with a lot of things because I did want to be open to the experience. I really did want to give non-monogamy like uh, a try and I guess put as much effort and yeah, openness into it as I could. And because of that, I definitely doubted myself, um, especially because of that da- dynamic with an older person, just kind of defaulting to like, oh, well, he's got more life experience in general, so he probably knows a little bit more. But it would definitely tell baby Michelle that like, if you have a really bad gut feeling, <laughs> it's not cowardice to back away mm. from it it's not like you being a bad person it's not you just being like the inflexible monogamous type divest yourself from the situation and even stand up for yourself in the situation because you have that bad gut feeling because there is something wrong
0: yeah <laughs> that's, that's powerful it's such a powerful realization and such a powerful lesson yeah, that sometimes takes some of us longer than you. Oh should. yeah,
1: especially I think like growing up, my my mom was like mostly like a single mom, and she also has a very strong personality. And I think my sister and I we adapted in different ways, but a lot of it was I think having to subsume ourselves in order to like keep the peace within the family and mm. to always right do as mother says and but not and so questioning our own autonomy, questioning our own decision-making abilities. And that definitely leaked my relationship style.
0: Now, as this journey was happening for you, was your own journey into queerness also happening in parallel? Or did that start at a different time? I mean, what was that like?
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've never had like as much of a, I don't know, as an explosive journey, I guess. With regard to my <laughs> explosives, <laughs> <That> Sounds
0: sexy. <laughs> <laughs> With
1: regard to my queerness, as much as non-monogamy, so like I'm bisexual, and so I think being bisexual just felt a lot more fluid and natural, of a discovery of a self-discovery as opposed to non-monogamy, because I think like there are more models of like bisexuality and more queerness, like as opposed to non-monogamy, feels definitely more of like a paradigm shift. So yeah, being non-monogamous definitely helped me branch out. And made me realize like, oh, all the feelings I had toward girls growing up, like weren't just I don't know, it wasn't just that I liked how she dressed or whatever, like, (laughs) Mm. there was like crushing going on. But I think because it wasn't modeled that way in my head as a kid, I didn't see it as crushing on a girl. I just thought she was like, really pretty and smart. And like, Girls have these feelings, friendly feelings toward one another, right? <laughs> I,
0: I, I know when I was growing up, it was, again, looking at it in retrospect, it was, it's like my girl crushes showed up as really wanting to be someone. Um, that, I know that was my experience. And again, it's that same thing of, oh, I think I just want to be here. Should I just admire her as opposed to what I realized now was, oh, you're crushing real hard <laughs> on this girl.
1: Mm-hmm yeah, do I want to be her or do I want to be with her? And maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> it is really funny <laughs> looking back and being like, yeah, those were definitely crushes. <laughs> and you definitely had a lot more crushes on girls than you did on like, on boys if we're going by this standard too.
0: In your family growing up, do you feel like there was an expectation of straightness? In kind of like that that default
1: way. Although I was pretty sure that my mom would have been Okay, if I came out to her as as gay, she seemed pretty um open to that. I don't think she necessarily would have known what to do with it when when we were kids. Where she's like, "Yeah, I don't care if you guys turn out to be gay or anything like that. I'll still love you." So I think mm. I was fortunate. I was fortunate with that. I still haven't talked to her about my sexuality, though. Even even though mm. she's talked about that, because I think again there would be that level of discomfort. I, I think with my mom would be okay. I think she would just kind of internalize it and try to think about it <laughs> on her own for a while. My stepdad, there's definitely some like more homophobic vibes, definitely oh, yeah. some bit more of like the straight, cis, toxic masculinity. It's not something I have any desire to talk with him about. But yeah, I think my mom would be relatively cool with it.
0: <laughs> I saw on your Instagram, uh, you're posting specifically about being at that intersection of queer and Asian and putting out that call of letting other queer Asians know that you see them. And I'm jumping head, ahead here a little bit because you've been running a Polyamorous ball Asian for, for how long now?
1: Um, I started at the end of February. So what is, oh, okay. what is so that? Eight months? This year. Yeah, this year. Oh my goodness. yeah,
0: Like no time whatsoever. I <laughs> thought for sure that you've been doing this for years just with how it's grown. No, that's and been and a really surprise.
1: That's been a surprise how much it's grown. But I think a big part of it is because I found like that niche where like polyamory still not there There are like a lot of resources um but yeah so the polyamory niche but then not only like person of color but like asian and <laughs> there doesn't seem to be very many yeah
0: yeah it was such an interesting thing because when i was prepping for this recording i typed into google polyamorous all asian to to see what it would bring up and it is so funny that the first thing that comes up is like this quora post of people being like is there polyamory in Asia? Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, like an old Reddit post from like five years ago of, yeah, someone being like, I'm an Asian man and there is, feels like there's no space for me in this community. So it's true. It really seems like there is such a need.
1: Yeah. And it's like, I know people are out there, but, and I think I've, I've made the same Google search and I think I've come across the same threads where I know those people are out there, but I think there are a lot of, like, I think polyamory in general is still Kind of stigmatized, and people still judge people for it. I think a lot of Asian communities, especially like your your parents, are immigrants, still fairly traditional and conservative. And um, a lot of Asian countries, like my my family, my mom's side is from Taiwan, and they're like, I think the first Asian or one of the first to pass LGBTQ equality laws, but yeah, still still fairly conservative, and that definitely translates over to like even if you know you're an Asian American, Um, still a lot of stigma and fear of judgment, and you don't want to be cut off from your family.
0: But your parents were immigrants as Mm -hmm. well. And would you say that in your experience growing up, it was like a similar mold of kind of carrying what you feel to be more traditional conservative values, or do you feel like it was different Um, in your experience?
1: There was, uh, yeah, because there's definitely that issue of feeling the need to assimilate. I think my mom definitely Wanted to assimilate a bit more than my dad did. My dad is more traditional um, Chinese, and he's not—he's not super conservative. Actually, he wouldn't care if I was gay or not. Um, he's like closer to his family, and I think they have more of the big Chinese family kind of thing going on on my dad's side. On my mom's mm-hmm. side, it's much more intimate. So we have—we do have um, like family in the Portland area, but yeah, we don't do like the big Chinese gatherings. Except maybe Chinese New Year, and even then, it's pretty mm. small. It's usually my grandparents, my parents, my sisters, and I. Especially after my parents' divorce, my mom definitely wanted to do a bit more with her life, like pursue a college degree, get a yeah, mm. get an education, get a career, be a, yeah. And she's super ambitious, and I think she wanted to explore a lot more that she didn't get to explore because she got married to my dad pretty young, had my sister and I. So she was just this stay-at-home mom in this, um, and she'd only been in the United States for about uh, five years by the time she had me. Oh, so yeah, she hadn't gotten to do a whole lot of exploring, and so yeah, the divorce I think was definitely of a new chapter, and in a way, like she um, had wanted to, I guess, Americanize a bit more in her her upbringing. For us, it was a mix of more traditional, like get good grades in school, um, go to college, you know, get a lucrative degree so you can get a good job. That, that, kind of, that kind of pressure. But she wasn't full on like, I guess, quote unquote, tiger mom, where it's like, okay, you have, mm. you have homework and then you have violin and piano lessons and then this and that and that. So it wasn't super strict, quite like that. It was a bit more just like, I guess, teaching her children to be a bit more self-sufficient and kind of self-managing. So it was, it was a mix of, I guess, like the, the Chinese conservative strictness and more of the American, maybe more of the attitude of like, we'll explore and have fun as well.
0: So interesting, you bring up assimilation. That's such a big part of the immigrant experience, either the resistance to assimilation and or the desire to assimilate or being caught in the middle of that, and especially also the trickle down effect on children of immigrants. Mm-hmm. And I think it is also interesting to look at those of us who are in the queer community or the non-monogamous community, the way that almost similar struggles play out, of course, in a very different way. But, you know, I I think about queer marriage rights, for instance, you know, simultaneously being such a victory. And then also, on the other hand, often critiqued as just trying to assimilate into Mm -hmm. this colonial white heterosexual model that we've been given And I mean, I, I see the same thing because it's, it's like, I mean, how many interviews have I done? And maybe you've done as well where someone's asking like, oh, how do you feel about polyamorous marriage? Do you want polyamorous marriage, you know? <laughs> and I'm sure that's something, you know, you've been cognizant of in these communities as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, like
1: for, for me, um, I think marriage can be important. And I don't disparage anyone who thinks that marriage is important because it is nice for sure. You know, you get tax breaks and stuff, um, but
0: <laughs> it's, it's a good tool. I mean, it's it's not a bad package for sure. Yeah,
1: like I've I've been joked that like probably down the road, like I wouldn't be opposed to marrying someone that maybe I don't have necessarily romantic love for, but like I, I yeah, it's, it is like viewing it as a tool because I think a lot of like the issues regard to like polyamory and marriage are things like well, who gets to visit who when someone's in the hospital that is still uh, still pretty shitty. There was somewhere in New England or on the East Coast where like a city, passed some sort of yes, law. Yes, it was
0: in Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for, for domestic partnerships, I think. Something like that. So yeah. like things
1: like like domestic partnerships, things that like, I mean, I feel like these things shouldn't be like so codified in law where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, who's allowed mm-hmm. to visit you in the hospital? Like, yeah, your wife or your husband can, but maybe not your like sister who you may be closer to. So I think under the system that we are in right now, it would be nice to have certain protections and certain allowances and whatnot. So I'm like not opposed to the idea, right? There there are more, I think there are bigger fish to fry.
0: <laughs> it's always is so mind-blowing to me to think about, like you said, this is so codified and it's like we have a state-sanctioned relationship. This type of relationship, it's the state-sanctioned relationship, have you heard? You know, it is so <laughs> funny to think about that, how it just so erases such a wide swath of possibility of human relationship and intimacy. I want to ask, because you started the Instrument Count just in February Uh of this year, and I'm curious to know what it was that drew you to first start speaking about these things more publicly.
1: Yeah, in my in my personal life, I'm not like super in the closet about it. It's not something maybe in a work setting that I'll just blurt out at any time. But you know, I've even talked to like coworkers who aren't necessarily close friends, because it'll sometimes crop up. I mean, people talk about relationships. So then it's like, the person that I feel like is relatively safe. I'm like, Oh, yeah, no, I mean, I'm not monogamous. So so your monogamous problem isn't necessarily something I can relate to. And we can have a laugh about that. There was something, I can't quite exactly remember what, but I did want to see more representation. Like, oh, I'm like really curious about where other polyamorous Asians are specifically. And looking around, I did that Google search, came across the same threads <laughs> mm-hmm. and ever, and I was like, I don't even know how I would find this on Instagram, like what tags I would have to mm. search for in order to find this. And I started, it, was, it almost started as just like a, almost like a personal blog, Type thing. I didn't exactly know what I wanted the account to be. And I mean, it's still uh, these days, I don't know what I want it to be. It's still evolving. But I like that whole phrase of like, if you don't see the representation, be the representation, just Mm -hmm. like kind of kept looping in my head. And eventually I was like, yeah, let's just do it let's do it. You know, I've got like a few topics I want to discuss the whole uh, that love is blind show had just come out. And so I had some thoughts with regard Mm to like, (laughs) monogamy culture, (laughs) with regard Mm -hmm. to that show. So yeah, I wrote about that. And yeah, I guess I just wanted to use the account to be a polyamorous Asian out there, but also as an account that I could probably use hopefully as a magnet and to try to find others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's, that's more or less how it started.
0: And over the course of running the account, what are the things that you've learned or what are the things that have surprised you?
1: It's always it's always a pleasure when someone like goes into my DMs and they're Asian and they're like, and some people can be out, some people can't be out. And they're like, hey, I mean, this is, yeah, I don't see any other polyamorous Asians. So this is great. And I'm like, it always, yeah, it's always exciting. Yeah, I, I was surprised that I did hit on that niche and that there was a sort of, I don't, I don't know, there, there was a, a space to be filled. And I just happened to stumble across it.
0: Before we continue with the rest of the interview, we're going to take a quick break to talk about the sponsors for this week's episode and the best ways that you can help support this show so that we can keep producing the show and delivering it to people for free. to get you not just the fifty percent discount, but also the one hundred percent free shipping. Code M U L T I. I saw that you started doing peer support. Oh yeah, sessions mm-hmm. with people. Has doing that shifted your perspective on anything?
1: Like overall, it's been really great. Like being able to connect with people one on one, and yeah, I've been non-monogamous since like two thousand twelve, so it's going on nine years. And of course, over time, you see patterns and whatnot. But then it's very different when you're talking to people and, you know, they're talking about more like sensitive topics, more specific topics with regard to their relationship. Yeah, we are. We all really are kind of in the same boat. There are so many patterns, Mm -hmm. so many different things where it's like, um, like you recently, yeah, talking about being introverted and being anxious and polyamorous like I think a lot of representation is just uh, the higher energy types and that's, that's how they can have so many different relationships and, can like bounce around and whatnot. But yeah, like in these peer support sessions, yeah, a lot of other people have anxiety. Um, a lot of other people are lower energy types and they think that non-monogamy can't work for them. And I'm here just mm-hmm. like, no, it definitely can. I mean, like I can tell you from personal experience, like it definitely can work. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's interesting. Talking about the the low energy versus the high energy, it's not really something that I've quite explicitly thought about before. I know in my own experience, I feel like I've always been at very low energy in regards to this. And I mean, sometimes, honestly, even today, I'm just like, it's a miracle that I'm drawn to have multiple partners (laughs) because I feel like I barely have the energy for multiple hobbies sometimes. I noticed that on the Instagram, you've also talked a lot about body neutrality, which not exactly a trending <laughs> hashtag. I feel like the trending hashtags are very much mm-hmm. in body positivity. And I would love to hear more about your thoughts on yeah, that. Yeah, so
1: Body neutrality was a term and a concept that I came across last year because of my therapist. And so my therapist a big part of the work that she does has to do with body image and whatnot. And so she introduced, yeah, so we were just in the session and she's like, okay, so of course we want to move away from feeling badly about your own body and whatnot, but also there seems to be a lot of pressure, especially these days, like it's well-meaning, but it turns into a lot of pressure to like love your body and to find it sexy all the time and to find it just awesome all the time. And so the mind blowing thing that she hit me with was, what if you didn't have to do either? What if you didn't have to feel either Mm. way about your body? What if you just, what if it was just your body? (laughs) And I remember sitting back and just like, Mm. what? (laughs) (laughs) And and so she expanded on the idea saying like, your body is just like this sack of meat, right? It's meat and bones and it, it houses your brain it allows you to hug people. It allows you to take in food and nourish, and you know, get the calories you need to walk around. I think more just focusing on what your body does or allows you to do, as opposed mm. to uh, I think viewing it from a framework of having to add value to it all the time. like it has to be yeah, like sexy or perfect, or like even if you're like plus size, with like it, it has to conform to still a specific shape. Like if you're in a bigger body. So yeah, just more of this idea of moving away from putting judgments on your body. And I think honoring it in these smaller ways to get away from Mm. either the pressure to view your body in a positive light or a negative light.
0: How does that translate to the Mm. everyday? Yeah, so
1: what I've done, a lot of it is I think getting, getting used to my body again. I think for a long time... It was me kind of like tolerating my body and like some days, you know, maybe I'll feel good about it. And the other days it's like, I feel crappy about it. But something my therapist told me, is just like, you know, like take selfies, take selfies of yourself, you know, like frame Mm. yourself in ways that, you know, make yourself feel okay. And... Kind of continue to expose yourself to your own body, and she also like recommended.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I just had a little shudder.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean all these things. Where it's like it kind of seems simple, but a kind of not, especially with a lot of the messaging that we get. And yeah, so she and she encouraged me to like to follow accounts that like you know make you feel uh, good about body image, and like if you follow a account that makes you feel bad about body image, just unfollow that. You know, you don't need that. And, like, a big thing for body image to me is, like, you know, when I see other people, I don't, of course, nearly have as much judgment about these other people as I do on my own body. Um, so, like, the more and more I, like, am cognizant of, I think, of either the neutral or positive thoughts that I have about other people, the more I can be cognizant of, I think, my own thinking about myself, you know, and catching myself when I'm, like, feeling down, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, man, the, that part's kind of flabbier than I want it to be, or there's like those stretch marks and stuff. Mm. But just like continuing to ex- uh, expose myself to, I think, all of this thinking. And it it's kind of serves as a sort of inoculation, in a way. I think the exposure bit has been huge for me personally.
0: I think it was the writer, Jill uh, Filipovic. Uh, she wrote a book specifically about feminism and and happiness. And I think she was the one who pointed out that, you know, part of the current body positivity movement and feminist movement has resulted in us being willing to be very praising and effusive of other women's bodies, other women's imperfect bodies. And, but still somehow having the sense of like, I can do that for other women's bodies and never for, and that's such a weird It's such a weird Mm -hmm. dissonance.
1: It is. It is. And like another part of like underlying um, piece of work that I do in therapy is like, (laughs) she always says, let's put Michelle first. And I think there's a big, yeah, there's Hmm. a big issue with like a lot of people. And I think like a lot of uh, women specifically to put other people first, you have to think of other people's feelings. And, and sometimes it's like, for maybe life or death reasons, you know, you have to be careful (laughs) about what you say, what you look like and stuff. Or Or else, you know other people might take advantage of you, and I think that is one of many, many reasons why it's difficult for for people to like accept compliments for themselves or praise themselves, but like it's easy to do for other people
0: i'm I'm curious to know you're really in the thick of creating this representation and really supporting people and amplifying voices in the community that need to be amplified and I'm curious to hear from you like what do you see? in the future for the non-monogamous community, the queer community, or you know, what are the things that you hope for?
1: Yeah, I mean, gosh, I mean, especially right now, yeah, with Black Lives Matter protests across the country and even internationally too, and I think more and more conversations regarding different levels of oppression and inequalities and that there are different tiers in our society that just are not looked at. Um, and talked about, and you know definitely like class and race are huge factors. So I do want within queer communities, within non-monogamous communities, like there are race and class issues for sure. and I definitely do see people um, talk about them, but we can definitely talk about them a lot more and actually like work together to create solutions around this and create more like meaningful inclusion and actually look at the ways look at the deeper reasons why like why are a lot of non-monogamous communities like predominantly white even even in areas that are not like overwhelmingly white areas but mm-hmm. the non-monogamous community within them very white and so um having those conversations i think is where is like a direction that we're going
0: this is like such an ongoing conversation and something that has been on my mind a lot lately Because I mean, I mean, so many people have, you know, are having these conversations and have done such a wonderful job of like really analyzing and looking at, you know, the intersection of non-monogamy and race and, and class and ability and things like that. and something that's been coming to mind for me is who gets access to the privilege of fully expressing yourself. Mm -hmm. It's like, to a certain extent, of course we have the mainstream that's always going to react negatively to anything that's a little bit different or any kind of self-expression that's a little bit different. But as we move through time, who gets privileged to access that first, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, where's the best place that our listeners can find more about you and your work?
1: Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at polyamorous
0: well, Asian. Michelle, it's truly been a pleasure to have this talk with you. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. This was this was awesome.
0: Thank you, everybody, for listening today. We're going to be sticking around to do a bonus episode with Michelle. We're going to do a little bonus round of questions, as well as a little bit of chat about compersion. If you haven't already, definitely go follow the Polyamorous While Asian Instagram account. The best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash Multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvinata. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenewerk and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?